Hello and welcome to another edition of Lights, Camera, Sports. I'm your host, Mike Galtieri. So happy to have you on board, which should be a great show as we have an excellent guest here today. The legendary, the commissioner, Bob Ryan, National Sports Writer of the Year in 2000, 2007, 2008, 2009. You know him from the Boston Globe. Bob, thanks so much for joining us here on Lights, Camera, Sports. Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. So Bob Ryan, uh, BC graduate, 1968, uh, Lawrenceville School, 1964, grew up in Trenton, New Jersey, uh, wrote the book The Scribe, which I love, Bob. I have to be honest with you, I had a long flight from Boston to Zurich, and it carried me the entire flight. I read it from cover to cover. Uh, I love the book The Scribe. Thank you very much. Glad to hear it. So let's just, I like to always talk to all the guests, get their history. You grew up in Trenton, New Jersey, uh, Lawrenceville School. What was it like growing up in Trenton? Did you always enjoy playing sports? Did you enjoy sports from a young age? I was involved in sports from uh, the time I can remember. My father was uh, always employed in a sports capacity uh, in such things as promotion and uh, back front office and stuff. And I grew up with, I don't ever remember a time ever than when we weren't at a game, going to a game or getting ready to go to a game. And so I played everything naturally, as, but I also read a great deal. I, I love reading. I love reading about sports. Uh, so I read all kinds of books and histories, and uh, uh, I was really immersed in sports and, and totally, but at the same time playing it. So it just seemed like my, my life was dominated really by two things, sports and, and music, uh, and listening to the radio, listening to the you – know, I was uh, at the birth of rock and roll, uh, and so I had my feet in both worlds of the the, uh, the, the popular songs of the day plus the, the, the new thing called rock and roll. So I've, I've still retained those two interests. But Trenton was very interesting located, Mike, because Trenton is 60 miles southwest of New York and 40 miles northeast of Philadelphia. And as such, uh, you get both cultures. We also were the television capital of the world, although we didn't know it and no one ever thought about it. But the fact is that whereas most municipalities uh, those days in the 50s when you grew up, you had your three network stations and that was it. Uh, although if you were in New York, you also had channels 5, 7, and, uh, 5, 9, and 11, and 13. Well, I got all those channels plus Philadelphia's. So I got everything on the dial. And what this meant was in terms of sports, I got Yankee games, Giants games, and Dodger games as well as Phillies games, when most people in America got the game of the week. So uh, I got a chance to see a lot more baseball than uh, living there as well. Uh, Then when rock and roll came, we got all the New York stations and the Philly stations, so we had the best of both worlds there, WABC New York and WIBG Philadelphia being two great rock and roll stations. So uh, And then we're an hour from the Jersey Shore. It was a damn good place to grow up. (laughs) That's great. Location, location, location. That actually reminds me a little bit. I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut. We got half Boston, half New York, a little bit Mm -hmm. the same way Mm -hmm. there, too. Uh, So you you grew up, obviously, you went to Lawrenceville School. Talk about that experience. And uh, you talked about how you kind of left your neighborhood a little bit. I remember in your book, and you went to Lawrenceville, and that's where you really uh, learned how to write. Changed my life. Uh, The opportunity to go to Lawrenceville, and the only reason I did uh, was that my mother was the secretary there, and she had been secretary to the business manager. And at the time, uh, they were allowing uh, uh, people in who, if you could pass the, you know, if you could qualify uh, to on uh, full scholarship as uh, son that was always was all male in those days, sons of staff. Uh, as well as faculty. But after my year, and there were two of us that got in that year in 1959, uh, they ceased that policy. So I was one of the last two people to get in 
uh, under that policy. I was very fortunate. Wow. I, I would have gone up the road to Notre Dame High School with all my friends, and life would have been different. I mean, uh, it would have been a lot different, I think, and who knows what would have happened. Um, going to a school like Lawrenceville means that you're immersed in, in, in um, a very concentrated academic environment, uh, which features reading and writing, 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 no such thing as a multiple choice test, uh, everything, even when, even in foreign language, from the time you start in French and uh, take French or Spanish, uh, you are immersed in, in reading things. And, and so it's, it's concurrent with learning the grammar of it. Yeah, you're, you're, you're reading uh, works and that's, that's what it's all about. So everything was reading and that, that, that was perfect for me because I was a, a child of words and I love, I love reading and, and, um, and, and I helped develop a, a writing aptitude that I had. I, I think with all due respect to the Notre Dame High School, there is no possible way I would have developed into the writer that I became if I had not gone to Lawrenceville. Well said. What sports did you play in high school, Bob? Uh, basketball. I, I, I didn't want to play football, but I had no taste. To, I'm not a violent person, but I did manage the football team. So I got in on the ground floor of, of, of how coaches think and, and, and preparing. And I knew all our offense and all that. I was, a, I was the manager of the football team. I was a, a basketball player. I had a very conventional pattern, uh, which means just as a freshman, you start as a JV, you start as a junior, you come off the bench, and as a senior, if you're good enough, you start. And that's the pulse, that's the the path that I had, which is a very traditional path. So, And I was also sports editor at a school paper. It's very unusual, though, to combine those three, if you think about it. And certainly managing and playing is a very rare combination. But I did it, and uh, I was really acknowledged to be the sports guy in the class. There you go. And then you carry that. First of all, I guess, how did you find Boston College? And uh, uh, let's talk about your time at B.C., uh, my, I was uh, I applied to five schools and I got a, I got rejected by Yale and Williams. I applied to Yale because you go to a school like Lawrenceville, it's kind of an expected thing to do to apply to Ren Ivy. And I applied to Yale because a lot of my friends were going there, and it, it seemed like the coolest place. Uh, what I should have applied to was Harvard because I was a kind of an oddball, oddball that Harvard would be more interested in taking than <laughs> Yale was. I applied to Williams because of the couple of teachers that I had who had gone to Williams, and I liked them a lot, and I admired them, and I listened to them about Williams, so I applied to Williams. Um, but I did also apply to three schools that were three peas in a pod at the days in those days. Uh, that was BC Holy Cross and Georgetown. And uh, long story short, I don't want to go into the Georgetown story. It's just crazy. But the fact is that I had an opportunity to go there after, on the, and I decided, no, I did go to, I'll go to Boston instead of Washington. I did eliminate Worcester right off the bat. And, uh, and that was uh, just in comparison to Boston and Washington. Nothing against Holy Cross, which is a school I really admire and like. But it was just a matter of uh, I thought I'd be happier in Boston, in Boston or Washington. And I wound up going to B.C., which turned out to be a, a perfect choice for me. B.C., Boston being the great sports town that it is. And B.C. at that point in time was really starting to change from a, a day student school oriented school to a cosmopolitan international school. And um and then athletically, it was a great period of time uh, for basketball. Bob Cousy was the coach, and it was uh, uh, we we were taking off. We had four excellent years when I was there, and went to two NITs, and when that really mattered, and two NCAA's. Uh, we went to a Final Eight my junior year. Uh, it was uh, it was a great time to be a BC basketball fan. And when I was reading your book, Scribe, the part about BC that really caught my attention was you did work with W at the time WVBC. Uh, when I was there, I was sports director at WZBC, and mm-hmm. I loved your Red Arback halftime interview picture and the story there. Uh, just to tell our listeners about that. Yeah, uh, well, I I had never. Well, of course, who has when you're in high school? So, but uh, there was the opportunity presented itself to try out to be the broadcaster for the basketball games when I was a freshman, and uh, the way we did it was a 
a trial uh, a, a, on, on audition, there was a, they called it a scrimmage. It was a Billy, an exhibition game. It was full referees and it was, um, uh, I'm sure they sold tickets and it was played, believe it or not. And you're, you're going to have to just imagine how different the times were. The game was scheduled for 930 on a Saturday morning in November, the day of a football game. And it was at Roberts, <laughs> it was at Roberts Center and it was Syracuse. It was Syracuse uh, uh, Orange Man, coached by Dr. Roy, uh, by Roy Danforth, and the starting backcourt was Dave Bing and some guy with glasses named Bayheim. <laughs> and and Dave Bing, of course, went on to become an all-time great player in the NBA as well as at Syracuse, and later eventually ended up his career as a Celtic. But anyway, did he coach um, Sacred Heart as well down Fairfield? That that was Dave Bike. That's right. Okay. A whole other mm-hmm. matter we can talk about. So <laughs> uh, Dave Bike, but Dave Bing and a, a Hall of Famer. And so, and if he's not, he should be. But I think he is. We can check it out. Uh, go Google Dave Bing. Anyway, uh, I got the job, and uh, I did the BC broadcasting for four years. I mean, every home game. Uh, we only did one road game when I was there, and that was my senior year, and we did a game at Pittsburgh, uh, the Duquesne game. But we taped games like when we went to the holiday festival, we would uh, tape the game and then play the tape of the game uh, when we got back at school. And um, But I did – and then the same thing with the tournament. So uh, I did that for four years. Now, one night we're sitting there in 19 – I guess it would be 1966 – and uh, Red was uh, in the house because he was scouting a, a player, John Austin, the great guard we had. And I look up at halftime, and he's walking across the court. Nobody told me they were going to go get Red Hour back for a halftime interview. And uh, I was, uh, I'm an amina, amina mode. You know, this is like the peak of his glory and fame. And, uh, and anyway, I interviewed Red Hour back. And yes, you alluded to the picture, which I was able to put in my book, which Red signed. And uh, uh, it's one of the great, you know, youthful thrills of, of my career was was uh, being this 20-year-old kid interviewing Red Auerbach, who was then the you know the coach and general manager of the Boston Celtics. Amazing story. Talk about, too, Bob Cousy, head coach there at BC. What was, what was that like, that was coming off the Celtics career? Well, here's how funny it was. Bob Cousy was, at that point, now he, he retired in 1963. He took the BC job a year in advance. He, he announced his retirement prior to the 1962-63 season. And he took the job as head coach of BC. So they had an interim coach that year, Frank Power, another wonderful man that I got to know very well and, yeah. and, and admire greatly, the late Frank Power. The Power who, Gym. After whom, after whom the Power Gym is named at BC. That's correct. Now, um, Cousy's the coach, and I'm the student broadcaster, so I got to know him. And uh, we, we, you know, I've known him and had his acquaintance for, for ever since then, the last, what, 52 years. And um, we were so thrilled to have Bob Cousy. This is Mr. Basketball. He's our coach, and here's the here's how the times have changed. As far as I know, he made twelve thousand dollars a year, and he was uh, it was a full time part time job. He didn't he didn't have to do much in the summer. He recruited and he had his network, but uh, he was off in the summer. It wasn't like it is now. Anyway, we were all proud of him of having him, and the word was out that here's how serious Coach Cousy is about this job. He put the word out that he would take no phone calls during practice. Hmm. <laughs> Wow. So we thought that was pretty impressive. That's how serious Coach Cousy was about the job. So we had Coos, and uh, his first year he went 10 and 11. And then from that point on, uh, uh, well, in my four years, we were as follows. 22 and 7, went to the NIT. First time BC had gone to the NIT. Uh, 21 and 5, went back to the NIT. 23 and 3, went to the NCAA and went to the final eight. And then my senior year, we had a disappointing year because we really thought we were going to be even better than the year before, but it didn't work out. We were 17 and seven, but we did get an invitation to the tournament. 
uh, and we lost to St. Bonaventure in the first round with Bob Lanier. So we were, uh, my four years, we were 117 and 37, not bad. That's and, uh, and we were a, a great running team. We, they coached and taught fast break basketball, such as I had never seen it, and, and such as is not taught today. It is not taught the way it was taught there. And we, we were, it was a wonderful time. And I went to um, all but four games of my last two years. The only four games I missed were uh, uh, Syracuse and LeMoyne. LeMoyne is in Syracuse, as you know, and uh, a, B- a, a Georgetown game and a Seton Hall game. Other than that, I managed to go to all the games, including the Christmas tournament in, in uh, New Orleans when I was in my junior year. And um, uh, so I was really immersed th- totally in BC basketball. So you're really into it. I want to get back to BC in a couple minutes, but first I just want to progress. So you, you graduate BC 1968, and then June 10th 1968, you and Peter Gammons, the first uh, were interns the same day, first day at the Boston Globe, and uh, just take it from there, Bob. It's quite a story. Well, I walked in. I walked in. First of all, I had an accident on the way. I got hit by a bloodmobile down a Leopard Circle. That was another story. <laughs> so uh, that was on my way to the on my way from driving where I was living in Brighton to get to the Global Marcy Boulevard. I got hit by a bloodmobile. But anyway, <laughs> not severely. But that messed up my fender and my my car. But anyway, uh, I meet this the the, the the other two sports interns that we're going to be working with that summer. I was going to be working with one was named is David Martin, and I don't know whatever know what happened to him. And uh, the other guy was this kid, Peter Gammons, uh, who uh, uh, was from Groton, Mass., and he was at North Carolina. Uh, still had another semester to go. He, he had not yet graduated. He had one more semester to go. Now, most internships do involve undergraduates. I was the rarity of being an intern who had actually already graduated. So um, we hit it off right away. And, of course, we've been friends to this day. And he, uh, he went on his path, and I went on mine, and, and it took a while for uh, him to get where he should have been, which is baseball, but he got it and turned out to be one of the great, if not the best baseball writer ever. And I got my path, uh, which was uh, basketball. And I would have been very happy doing baseball, but uh, basketball actually was a, a better vehicle for me, and, and, I'm, and I'm glad it worked out that way. So, yes, uh, we met, and, um, and we started the same day, and I think that was a pretty good uh, day for the Boston Globe. Yeah, well said. And I didn't realize uh, your roommate at BC, that longtime SID at Boston College, Reed Oslin, was uh, involved as well. Well, Reed Oslin was my roommate, and, and Reed, uh, uh, one of my roommates, and he was my roommate my senior year, and we, we, uh, he, he actually had the opportunity to get this internship uh, before I did because he was the official um, student aide to Eddie Miller, the then SID, the long-term and legendary BC Sports Information Director. I was also affiliated in that office, but not officially, but unofficially. I was like a deputy, and we, but Reed was Eddie's official guy, and uh, but he did not. Uh, he turned down the offer because he really wasn't going to go into journalism uh, as a career, and, and so graciously stepped aside. And Eddie then recommended me to to. Uh, and the, the folks at the at the Globe and and uh, they uh, gave me the interview and I got the job. But uh, if Reed had accepted the interview, then I wouldn't have gotten an opportunity. And I do not have any idea what was going to happen to me. So um, this was like in March of senior year. So um, got the job and and uh, so I had somewhere to go once we graduated. It's funny how things work out in life. Yes, it is. Yes, yeah. and I, my rec- my recommendation of kids is you know they want to how do you do this how do you do that I said well I can tell you I'm not good I'm not good at how you get a job but i can tell you that just be prepared when your opportunity comes don't don't blow your opportunity because you didn't prepare yourself the way you should have and i think i was prepared like bob i'd like to quickly get to the your celtics years obviously amazing you know i didn't realize you were the a lot of times the only guy there the gym at practices those early celtics years and 
just give our listeners a, a, the atmosphere of that time with the practice. In those days, when I started, uh, there were three papers in town, the Boston Herald and the Traveler, the evening edition of the Herald, the Boston Record and the Boston American, the American Beat in the Afternoon Edition, and the um, uh, uh, the Boston Globe and Evening Globe. The Boston uh, uh Harold uh, writer was Joe Looney, who was a, a wonderful gentleman of the old school, lived on Beacon Hill and Pinckney Street and had a license plate 13909, which was the capacity of the Boston Garden. He had a vanity plate uh, oh. and he wore tweed jackets and smoked a pipe and he was right out of the old school. Uh, the other guy from the Herald was Eddie Gahuli, who was kind of a classic tabloid, uh, go-getting kind of guy, very energetic and a good guy. We hit it off. We, we became friends. And uh, uh, but the thing is that uh, after a year, Joe retired, and, and things happened in that paper, and uh, and then there was a merger. There was a merger between the Herald and the Traveler, and, and the Herald and the Record American, and uh, Eddie Gaholi became my chief competitor. He was burdened with other jobs. He had to work the desk. He had to be a thing called Mr. Z during the football season, picking football games. And he didn't have time to go to practice, and they didn't urge him or, or make it mandatory for him to go to practice. Well, I had a job, and that was covering the Celtics. So I went to practice every day, and you could go to the full practice, unlike today when they're closed. And um, I, I became, uh, I was the only person there. There was no TV, local TV coverage. There was no national coverage. It was Bob Ryan in the Boston Globe. And, I, and so I got immersed in it. I learned the offense. I got to know everybody very well, very intent- closely. Uh, made a lot of friends, and uh, and that's the way it was then. Today, it's entirely, completely different. Uh, there's nobody in the NBA coverage uh, uh, has li- can li- live a life such as the one I lived in the early seventies. When did the, Where did the Celtics practice back in those days, Bob? Well, the the first place they practiced, uh, you know, what was. Um, Let's see. I'm trying to think. The first year, uh, among the, uh, the Lexington Christian Academy, which is, uh, uh, I guess, it's still there. It's in Lexington. I assume it's the way it was in Lexington. I remember uh, driving in there off of Route Two, and then they went to Hellenic College. Hellenic College, which is uh, in Brookline, and uh, they were there for a number of years. And and all the glory years of the of the uh, Big Three, and uh, the uh, the greatest team of ever of all time, the '85 '86 Celtics. They practiced at Hellenic College. And um, then eventually they went to Brandeis and then eventually in the Patino where they, they were able to uh, go to Health Point in Waltham where they are now. And they are in the process of getting a new facility and they're going to be joining the Bruins as, as uh, neighbors in Brighton uh, sooner rather than later. But um, my, my finest memories are that would be at, the, uh, uh, at uh, Hellenic College. That's where we spent many, 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 many hours. And you, I, I had a note in your book that I caught my eye. Talk about John Havlicek. How he's not really uh, as remembered as he sh- or as well as he should be to this day. No, he's not. Uh, he's starting to fall through the cracks of history, and that's very tragic because uh, at his best, John Havlicek was the best player in the league. And I mean, best non-center. I always have to categorize, separate. When we have these discussions about greatest players, we have to say, okay, we're talking centers in one category, and everybody else in another category. Uh, the the Players that people most remember and assume are the best players in his time were Oscar Robertson and Jerry West. And for in the, most of the 60s, they were the best players. But by the time, by about 1968, Oscar had been around. They'd each been in the league eight or nine years. And I'd say from 1969 to 1973, uh, when Oscar was aging and Jerry was aging, and even there was still high level, particularly Jerry, uh, John was better. John could guard either one of them. He was the only one who was a two-position player. He was a small forward and a big guard. Um, he, he was getting triple doubles before we knew what, what to call them. Um, and, and he was simply a better player in those days. And, and his legendary stamina, leading the league in minutes played, uh, never having to come out of the game. 
uh, he was a better player at that point over the last four years of their careers than, than uh, Jerry West and, and Oscar Robertson, but he never got the full credit for it. He started out his career as a sixth man. That was totally strategic. He was always among the top five Celtic players, and by his, his third year, he was, the, he was the second best player after Bill Russell. And But they were able to bring him off the bench because that was the strategy that they employed. But once uh, Russell retired and Sam Jones retired and John uh, – in fact, Tom Heinsohn actually tried to bring him off the bench for a couple of games in 68, 69, 70, but he realized it was it was stupid. He needed him on the floor. And from that point on, he not only uh, was not, start, not, not starting, he was leading the league in minutes played. And we're not talking about leading the league in minutes played the way you would today with like 40 or 41 minutes. We're talking about 45, 6 minutes a, a, a game. And uh, that's a stamina that no one today has. Yeah, no question about it. Dave Cowan's your retirement story in the hotel room. Uh, can you mm-hmm. tell that, that that's amazing to me. Now this you would never see that in this day and age. No, well, the relationship wouldn't exist in the whole circumstance. What happened was we were at the in the exhibition season in uh, 1980, um, Bird's rookie year, uh, excuse me, Bird's second year. And uh, we were in Terre Haute because of Bird. Um, we were playing exhibition games there. They were playing exhibitions, and we were in Terre Haute. And uh, it had a practice on the morning uh, of uh, a game again in Evansville against the Bulls. They had a shoot-around uh, and, and before they would get on the bus uh, to go down to Evansville. And we get back from the shoot-around, and I was in my room. It was approximately noontime. I heard a knock on the door, and I opened the door, and there stood number 18 in his practice uniform holding a sheaf of yellow legal pad papers. I said, what do you want? So he came in and he said, here, look at this. So I, I, I started to read the papers and they were out of order. So, oh, I got, let me get this in the right order. Well, I realized I'm reading a retirement statement. So I read this. I said, well, what do you want from me? And he said, I want you to edit it, you know, put it in order if you want. And then uh, would you get it in the paper? Remember, we had an afternoon edition in those days. Okay. I said, yes, okay. I said, well, you got to give me a little time and uh, I'll, I'll do this. And he said, oh, but um, do you mind if I call Red first? <laughs> gee uh dave i think that's okay so uh <laughs> he picked up the phone he called the office and here's the conversation it was uh uh hello mary and mary being mary Faraday, a red uh, our back secretary uh it's dave yeah man i talked to red hello red it's dave remember what we talked about the other day yeah i'm doing it okay see you when i get back and that was it Wow. And uh, so I edited it. It was well written. And I knew he could write because he had written things for us before. And so what you saw in the paper was about 85, 90 percent Cowens and 15 percent, 10, 15 percent Ryan with, uh, with little, you know, transitions or a few things and punctuation. But basically it was nicely written. And it was his retirement statement. And uh, now that's part A. So now it's four o'clock, 430. And they're getting on the bus to go to Evansville. And he gets on the bus and uh, announces to the team what's going on here. And ML Carr was the ultimate prankster. When Dave was done, said, all right, are you done? He said, yeah. I said, well, get the hell off our bus. But I don't think he said hell. And uh, <laughs> kiddingly, of course. So now the bus pulls away and Cowens and I are standing there. I said, well, what's up? And he said, well, I'm going to go home. And home being Newport, Kentucky. And uh, I said, okay. And he said, but, uh, uh, and lo- this is classic Cowens of the day. Uh, he didn't have a whole lot of cash on him, and he didn't have any credit cards on him. I don't know. He just was traveling that way. Uh, <laughs> so long story short, I rented the Avis car for him and gave him the keys, and off he went wow. and uh, drove the car to Newport. Now, there's a story which I think is unique to Bob Ryan, and I, that's why I always knew if I were going to have a book that I would want to start it with something that was unique to me that no one else is going to be able to top and, and in our business. And, and, I'm, I, and I think I achieved that goal. 
Dave Cowens <laughs> needed Uber back then <laughs> to get a car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, fun. that's 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 an amazing story. Well, that transitions very well. You said that happened in Indiana, Bob Larry Bird. Now I'm 31, Larry. Um, Bob, I I grew up in West Hartford, and I I remember the last couple images of when the Celtics played in Hartford three or four games a year. My dad had season tickets, and I my oh, really my only memory of Larry is. Uh, when they gave him uh, a, a send-off down in Hartford in the early '90s, so I, I mm-hmm. missed all of uh, mm-hmm. that. The, you know that that's I've had to read you and watch old on YouTube. But just describe mm-hmm. to our listeners who are, might be my age or younger just the, the three or four things about Larry Bird that stuck out in your mind and in how he played basketball. Well, number one, he's the best passing forward who's ever lived, and and his, his chief competition is, is is on display every night for you now, and that's LeBron. And um, do, you th- do you think um, he's I, better than LeBron James? I think as a passer, he's still uh, a slightly marginally better. Although LeBron threw a pass last week, which which Larry would have been quite proud of that that look away backhand bounce pass through the opponent's legs uh, to a cutter for a basket. And uh, Larry had thrown passes. I've seen him throw the pass between guys' legs. I've seen him do things. I've seen him throw backhand passes. I've seen him believe many countless look away passes. But that pass to LeBron's was a bur- The first thing I thought of. This is one that Larry would be really proud of. Really? Um, because, but yeah, Larry's a better all-around passer still than than uh, better uh, pivot feeder, better long-distance passer. Um, if you're starting a team, if you're starting a team though, would you draft Larry Bird or would you draft LeBron James? Who, no, LeBron is a better athlete. Yeah, and Larry would be the very first one to tell you that. LeBron is a better defender. Larry's an excellent team defender, but Larry, obviously, LeBron straight up. Uh, is a, is a bigger, stronger, faster. He's a better athlete. Not even close. Larry knows that. Gotcha. LeBron, Larry's a better shooter. Larry's a better shooter. LeBron's stronger and and, and going to the basket is powerful. Uh, Larry's obviously a better free throw shooter. I mean, the scoring would come out probably about the same. Uh, but LeBron has an impact in the field. They're a different field. But nobody psychologically, Larry was the smartest player. The, the great advantage over anybody uh, that he played with uh, against, I mean, was the was the, the thinking ahead. Um, the, the the vision was just incredible. The thought process was just incredible. Bill Fitch nicknamed him when he was a rookie Kodak because he said when when the ball changes hands, he's got a mental picture of where the other nine players are on the court. Takes a mental photo. He knows where everybody is. Um, obviously, there's just I'm trying to think. They're really. There really isn't, isn't anybody to compare him to in style-wise today uh, at all. Uh, he, he, he was an, he, funny. He didn't like this three-point play. He thought it was kind of almost dishonest, but he was the first, one of the first early great practitioners of it. He used kind of used it more as a psychological weapon, saving it for the right moment as a dagger kind of thing. Uh, you know, and the way the game has evolved today, he'd take more threes. I think the most he ever made in the game was five, maybe six. But uh, he, uh, let me just put this in perspective, though, in case anybody's wondering how good he was in that regard. He had a stretch uh, on a road trip, on a West Coast trip in, in uh, uh, February of, of 1986, where over, I don't know how many games this would encompass, about five games, I'd say, maybe six. He was 25 for 34 on threes. Wow. Think about mm-hmm. that for a minute. And so Steph Curry, eat your heart out. That's pretty good. Yeah, you don't. Larry, and this is 30 years ago. So Larry was kind of, you know, he would have been okay today in that regard. Don't worry. It's just hard to explain the total package and this charisma and the way he connected with the crowd. When he was young, he was a great rebounder. So triple doubles. Uh, from, as a forward, you know, Magic had a lot of triple doubles, but Magic had the ball all the time. 
Larry didn't have the ball all the time, yet they ran an offense through him. And they never really needed a true point guard after Tiny Archibald left because they had Larry to run the offense through. As a point forward, quote-unquote, uh, there's never been anybody better uh, except for LeBron. They're, 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 they, and by the way, they were, they're the two best forwards of all time, and they would have played together beautifully. That would have been unfair. Totally, un- I mean, it would have been ridiculous. That, that's uh, interesting that you say that. They're same position, but you... you, you, you they would have, think... because they both, their hearts are both in the right place. They both instinctively would have known when, when to take over, when to defer. They would have played together. There would have been, there would have been sequences that people would have, like, they would have just, you know, they, would have, they couldn't believe what they saw because we had that with Bird in the smartest center who ever lived. It was, uh, well, since Bill Russell, and that was Bill Walton. And and uh, my God, if you ever put Walton Bird and, and, and LeBron together, you, you wouldn't want two other guys. They'd get in the way. I mean, I mean, that would be that would be the greatest pairing of all time if you ever put Walton Bird and, and LeBron on the floor together in terms of the ball movement and the, and the intelligence and the artistry. But Bird and LeBron is would be the most exquisite forward packaging you could ever imagine. Bob, do you think I know Larry loved playing for the Celtics? Do you think he liked living in the city of Boston? I know he's from Indiana. He spent time. He used to have a place in Naples, Florida. Do you think he enjoyed the city of Boston outside of basketball? Larry, Larry surprised himself how much he loved, came to love Boston. Traffic was, you know, was annoyance, but other than that, he loved it. You could do stuff that obviously you can't do in French liquor or Naples, Florida, and and, and he liked it. And um, he embraced Boston and, and feels very strongly about Boston. But he also was a loyal son of a loyal Hoosier. And he's back there, and I think he'll spend the rest of his life in in, um, in Indiana. Uh, but uh, there's a strong Hoosier feeling. But oh no, he totally loved Boston. He told me that many times. And Bob, you've probably been asked this a million times, but if, covering the Celtics, is there a moment that sticks out to you as the kind of the ultimate moment for you, witnessing those teams, or whatever decade it was? There were so many things. You know, I was very emotionally t- closest to the teams of the '70s and the teams that won. Uh, the teams at uh, 74 and 76 and the team that won 68 games in 73, the best running team of, you know, the Celtic of all the great Celtic teams, the best running team. Um, there were, it's not one thing that I, I'm very fond of that. I was very close to Havlicek and Paul Silas. I love Cowens. I, he's my favorite person to cover I've ever covered uh, because of the combination of the all hall of fame talent and the, and the interesting personality. Uh, obviously bird, best player individually I ever covered um, and I love those teams and that 85-86 team was the best visual spectacle that you could ever have uh, there that's for sure and uh, there's so many of those that I can't I can't really pick one uh, at all and then uh, so it, I was just lucky I mean how lucky I had to cover all those championship teams and and then you throw in that team that won 68 that if Havlicek hadn't gotten hurt you know they would have won and um, and that would have been another championship. So uh, that 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 uh, I'm just lucky that I can have that many to pick from. And 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 being unable to pick one tells you how many wonderful experiences I did have. And you got me thinking as you've talked about 85, 86. Where do you think that team ranks in terms of all-time teams? Is that better than the uh, Bulls? Put them, up, put them up against anybody. I know they beat all those Bulls teams. Really? And uh, oh, there's no there's no question. First of all, the, they had the ultimate trump card uh, aside from Larry that nobody can guard Mikhail. And and uh, they they would have beaten those Bulls teams. And not even there's not a slightest doubt about that. The, but the front court, the 85 to 16. First of all, the 85 to 16 brought had, had an ingredient no team ever had before. No teams had since, and it's undoubt it's doubtful any team ever will. You can't put the you, you're not going to have a healthy, viable Bill Walton off the bench. Nobody has ever had a thing like that. They only had it once. He got hurt, and he only played ten games the next year. But they had it that year. 
and that's a dimension unlike any six-man dimension in the history of the game. It changed the game every night in a way that no game's ever been changed since. And then Bird and Walton together is a pairing that never has been no, – nothing close to it has ever happened in, in basketball since. There's no doubt in my mind that both the 85-86 Celtics and the 86-87 Lakers beat any of those Bulls teams. As a matter of fact, here's one of my favorite cocktail party, you know, napkin on the napkin things. I give people a list of about 12 or 15 players, no more than 15, but at least 12. And, uh, and I say, what, what do these players have in common? And they say, uh, and they never, and nobody, I think one person's ever gotten it. One. And because it, 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 you, you think you're circling in on it, but you don't know exactly what I'm trying to get at. And the names are like Walton and Bobby Jones and uh, Jamal Wilkes and uh, Scott Wedman and Michael Cooper and Vinnie Johnson and Dennis Rodman and, and on and on. And, and the answer is, these are all guys who, at least for one full season in their careers, came off the bench for each of for of, for one of the four t- uh, teams that won the t- titles in the 80s. Four teams won championships in the 80s. Celtics, Lakers, 76ers, and Pistons. And I maintain that that team beats any of the Bulls teams. Yeah. With substitutes from the championship teams of the 80s. Wow. Hmm. That's my opinion. I may be hanging out there on a limb, but I'll t- I, 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 I totally believe it. The backcourt wouldn't have been as good as the frontcourt, but the backcourt would have had the likes of Danny Ainge, Vinnie Johnson, Michael Cooper. I, uh, I, I, I can live with that backcourt. Who do you think would primary guard Jordan in those, the, the, in those teams? Michael Cooper. Yeah. No problem. I mean, he'd guard him and he'd guard Jordan. Fine, Jordan be Jordan. But it, how many other great offensive threats? Tipton. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, who's going to guard? Who's going to guard Mikhail? Mikhail came off the bench. Who's going to guard? Uh, who's going to guard Worthy? Worthy came off the bench in his first two years. I mean, stop it. Yeah. Bobby I... Jones. People say, so who's that? Well, go YouTube him. There's nobody <laughs> like him in the league today either. But then you have Phil Jackson versus Casey Jones, that matchup as well. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting discussion. Yeah, it really is. It is. But, but as far as the 85-86 Celtics and any of those Bulls teams, please, don't even go there. It's not even it's not even they'd be lucky to go six. <laughs> wow, there there you go. And then Bob, to tie up your the basketball coverage, I love that photo in your book in the Olympics of you, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird in Barcelona. Well, I went to Brian McIntyre. I went to Larry and and, and um Magic said you guys would you take that picture with me? And Brian McIntyre, who was the public relations director of the NBA, was there and he took the photo. And I don't know which one of them they they're standing there with their arms on my shoulders and and I don't know which one of them did that first, but the uh, other one followed through. Obviously, it's one of my two prized possessions that if the house is burning down, I have to save it. And that's that's one. And, and the other is an autographed copy of, of the Ted Williams essay, uh, Help Fans Bit Kid at You, autographed for me by John Updike. So um, that, those are the two things that I have to save if, you know, the old proverbial issue if, if your house is burning down. <laughs> wow, that is a great shot, no doubt about it. Bob, before I let you go, let's just transition to college sports quickly. You're a BC alum, mm-hmm. I'm BC alum. Yeah. Let's uh, that was the last night watching that game against Florida State. I don't know if you caught it. They lost by BC basketball, I'm talking about. Lost by no. close to 30 points. What is for um first of all, let's talk about BC basketball. Your your state mm-hmm. of the program, Jim Christian, and how the team is doing. Uh, the team, of course, as we know, is, is is not doing well. And I thought that there maybe things would be somewhat better this year after they had beaten the NC State and Syracuse, but uh, it's it's regressed again. Um, uh, it, it we know that as I see, Mr. Bates is is uh, retiring, quote unquote. 
even though his contract would be up in October, and, and I would think they were going to have to make a move because uh, he's presided over this this problem era when when uh, basketball has deteriorated horribly and and football has struggled. Uh, I think football has a chance to get. To, to straighten itself out, but basketball needs to start over. Obviously, I, Jim's a nice man. I uh, wish him well, but I, I can't imagine he's going to survive uh, in, after this. Um, things have gone very poorly, and we'll get right to the chase. I know you uh, were Al's manager, um, but Al had a f- tremendous success at BC as the golden era of BC basketball. But it was ending, and it wasn't. It didn't appear that it was going to get better. And I did approve of the firing at the time. I did. I never dreamed there would be such a, a difficult time in uh, replacing them. I didn't think that there would be that hard. We've won at BC going back to the Cousy era. In every decade, there have been good periods of basketball where BC has competed well. And I don't care about ACC or, or Big East or, or Mountain West. This, BC doesn't have to be this bad. The right guy's out there somewhere, and uh, they got to find them. And the first thing you have to do now, of course, is get a new AD. But the right guy is out there. You can still win at BC for all the reasons why BC was good before and has been good in the past. You can still win at BC if you get the right guy. But, uh, you know, Al, Al's time had come once he lost Billy Cohen and he lost Pat and, and, and Eddie Cooley. They had found the players for him. Al coached them up wonderfully. But, you know, and I know that Al was the least hardworking man in showbiz. And it finally caught up to him. Yeah, so you, st- you my... still you still stand by that that statement? Totally. The March thirty first. There's, no, there's no reason there's, there's no reason to, 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 to for me to back away from it. Yeah, I, 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 BC and basketball I, fans I, and, and, they always reference that March thirty first two thousand ten column, the Globe. But you, you wrote yeah, that exact words. Yeah, I know. And Al, and Al blames he actually has blamed me for him not having a job for those four years. Really? Because he said when people yes he told me that to my face that people go to. Uh, uh, on, uh, online, and the first thing there is my column. Well, number one, athletic directors do their own due diligence. They're not paying attention to what Bob Ryan says as, as, a, as a determining factor in who they're going to hire. So that's preposterous on the space. But here, I just throw this out there. If if I weren't right, and if the word wasn't out on Al and his and his work work habits, why did it take him four years to get another job? With the with the one loss record that he posted at Rhode Island and BC and the success that he had, why did it take him so long to get another job? And then when he got a job, why did he get a job at the among the lower levels of, of, of uh, NCAA basketball? And I just the answer is self-explanatory. I don't even have to finish the sentence. So that's the that's the and as I said to him when he confronted me after I wrote that column. Didn't you see the him Dunkin', the next day at uh, the Dunkin' Donuts at Dunkin' Donuts uh, at, on Terminal A with that's my a... wife and we're, we're all we're all on our way to go to the Final Four. And here comes Al ambling down at 6:20 in the morning. I said, Well, to my wife, I said, Elaine. I got to get this over with right now. And Al and I had it out for about 15 minutes and, and you know, and, and, and I gave him a chance to have a say. And uh, obviously it was, I don't like writing columns like that. I don't, but I, I did what I thought was my job. And, and obviously he disagrees with the premise I had, but I'm telling you, you tell me, why did he not get the St. John, uh, the, the Seton Hall job? Why did he not get another job? And why did he wind up at Kennesaw state? It's because people, the word was out. And that's the word that I said, Al, what I wrote is the universal opinion of you. I am sorry. And I'll stand on that, Mike. What I wrote was the universal opinion of Al Skinner. And I'm sorry. Here's what Al Skinner should have done a long time ago. He should have been an NBA assistant. He was a perfectly well-qualified, professional person. But he, to his credit, didn't want to live that lifestyle. This is my opinion. This is my take. He didn't want that lifestyle. He liked the lifestyle. He he was able to live as a college coach, working the hours he preferred to live to work 
doing the job the way he wanted to do it. And he did it very well until finally it wasn't working so well. It wasn't going to work so well without the assistance, the great assistance that he had to found on the players. Yeah. Because he wasn't out fine. He wasn't out there finding the players. Billy Cohen was the guy who found all the players. And Eddie Cooley and Pat Duquette wasn't Al. Al closed deals. That's all Al did. And he coached them well. Yeah, I, I I do agree with you. The finer players, I do disagree with you though. And when in terms of when you say all he did was close deals, there, I was at those practices. Mm-hmm. I saw what Al Skidder was doing, and you know the win loss record speaks for itself. We've seen what BC basketball has turned into, and the really the disaster that it's been uh, since 2010. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know we look back at Al's records those years. I would sign up for that in a heartbeat for what we have now. And I uh, take so, it too. That's assuming that it was going to maintain itself. Look, we'll never know. It's an imponderable. But I mean, no what you can't, and we can, you know, we can, you know, go back and forth on this, and, and, and you know, and, and he said, she said. But the one thing that is, frankly, unarguable is my premise that I just said to you. If, if I'm wrong, why is he coaching at Kennesaw State, and why did it take four years? Yeah, you know, I think when you're out of the game, you're not on TV as much. You, the ADs talk, and they lose you lose track of the person. I, I do believe uh, that. No, 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 and, no, 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 no. Good try, <laughs> good try. You're loyal. I admire loyalty. No. <laughs> well, let, I mean, let, 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 we'll see in the next couple of years. We'll see how he does. If he can get that team to the no, tournament, he can coach. I know. Uh, yeah, we right. And if he gets another, and if, and if, if this is a springboard, you know, you know, Al, and you know, and I know the man from Long Island. The Northeast guy, the man, uh, he is not intending to spend the rest of his life in suburban Atlanta. You know it, and I know it. Yeah, no question about it. <laughs> okay. Why? <laughs> quickly, too, I want to just get your thoughts, too. Dick Kelly, Boston College. I know you uh, interacted with him a lot, too, Bob. Uh, just just your, your your thoughts on that, your opinion. Um, Dick Kelly. He passed away like, from ALS. Just thought listeners. Who know. didn't like Dick Kelly? Dick Kelly was was a one of the great, most loyal and 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 um, uh, honorable and 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 competent DC people of all time. Uh, every player that was uh, that met him uh, remembers him finally. He was a friend of the media. He was a a uh, it, it was just a, a wonderful person. And um, I miss. We all miss. I mean, I miss having the opportunity to to come to the games and, and chat with him and and. Um, you know, he's got, he was, he's impossible. He's truly impossible to replace. You don't replace people like that. You, you just, you just soldier on. Well said. And quickly, let's get your thoughts on BC football, the future it has with it. Do you, do you think Adazio is the answer? Do you think this is trending I, upwards, trending the right way? I, I you know, I know we did, you know, they scheduled properly to get themselves the sufficient wins to get to the bowl game, and they won it, and God love them for that. Uh, the defense, obviously, the defense is really good. The defense, even. Last year, I mean, at 15, when they couldn't win a game in the league, was one of the best defenses in America. But they need a quarterback. If they can find a quarterback, I, and uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not giving up on BC football. I mean, BC basketball is currently constituted is a lost cause in this regime. But but I don't think football is a lost cause. No. And then Brad Bates, your thoughts on him and leaving? And what about this, Bob? What about Bob Ryan as the next athletic director at Boston College? Well, number one, I didn't get to know Brad uh, at all, but people spoke highly of him as a person. And, and you know, obviously his, his hires, you know, don't, you know, it's not going to just doesn't look good, uh, particularly the basketball. But uh, uh, but then again, he didn't hire Steve Donahue. Uh, Gene DiFilippo did. So the, the, the last two basketball hires have been whiffs after, after Al's thing. And, and I understand, you know, anybody saying, well, there you go. End of story. Should have kept Al. All right. Now, um, no, uh, that job has become, is so 
different than it was when I was in school. Uh, when and the great, um, wonderful Bill Flynn was there, and it was a mom and pop store, and it was all about personal relationships, and it wasn't about the, the, the myriad of things it is now. These are very difficult jobs. These big time athletic director jobs now, and you and you're and you're overseeing such an empire. You know, men's sports, women's sports. How many sports do you see have? You know, I think it's thirty one. Uh, thirty one. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, my God, I mean, uh, it's a it's a little. They're all little empires, and uh, nothing that appeals to me. I'm uh, I'm very happy staying on my side of the fence. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as we we're both alums, I think to sum up the BC, we just hope it, it you know turns around. It's a great school, you know, a great city. Obviously, the facilities need to improve, but uh, I always kind of you know turn my head a little bit. And people say there's no chance they could do well. Uh, th- th- there's a lot going for Boston College. No, I, I'm with you. I'm not. I mean, I, I'm I'm stubborn in that regard. I, I know times have changed, and I know I didn't look. I never wanted to go in the ACC in the first place. Really? So here's what I know. Well, oh, no, I, I thought I was horrible. I was horrified. I never wanted to go, and I wanted to stay. I wanted to be, but the big, you know, look, football is the culprit. Football has wrecked two leagues. It has hijacked the ACC and it's hijacked and ruined the Big East. And and now we know the Big East split finally, as people knew it would have to. Uh, the Catholic schools that don't play football they had to go to their own league, and they and they have. I mean, big time football, you know, and some of them don't play football at all. And so that's the way the Big East was founded on basketball. The ACC was founded on basketball. They were very, very content, chugging along, doing their thing wonderfully. And football reared its ugly head and, and hijacked them. And, and, and uh, anyway, but, you know, BC entered the ACC with a basketball team that was as good a team as it's had really one of the two or three best teams in its history with Dudley and Smith and Marshall and Hinnant and so forth and did very well, very, very well. And and uh, football went in and played for the ACC title. Uh, you know, uh, I just that's the teams we went in with. So I still have to believe that the right people, you know, can get this job done in BC. Just, it's not about the fact that they're in the ACC. It's just that they just haven't gotten the right people. I don't care what league they're in. They they, they got to they, they can we can be better. We BC can be better than we have been. And that's a great segue. You talked about the new Big East. We have a lot of listeners down in Connecticut. And uh, I'd like just to get your thoughts first on UConn, their situation. I really want to hear about your thoughts about Jim Calhoun and the the rebuilding job he did in the mid-'80s. I don't know if it's nationally – he's obviously a national name, but I don't know if it's talked as much about it as it should be with the, the just the, the where he took over in 86 to where UConn was cruising uh, up until the last couple of years, the, 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 what he did at UConn. UConn was a nice regional team, always, you know, dominated the Yankee Conference in the 50s, was still a nice team, could win its 20 games and get to the NIT and so forth. And, the, and then, uh, but, but then things have kind of fallen down. Uh, Don Perno wasn't getting it done. And uh, Calhoun takes the job and things change. And, and I said they should put on his plaque in the Hall of Fame. Uh, he, uh, he made Stores, Connecticut a destination. Yeah. I mean, which is incredible because there is no stores, as we know, is basically a mailing address for Mansfield. And, and uh, it's it's just it's 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 one of the great coaching jobs and, and, and program building jobs in the history of college sports. And, yes, it's not getting enough credit. People got he, people came to take it all for granted as he was churning out great team after great team, winning national championships, putting guys in the NBA, that what UConn had been. And, and UConn was always – Connecticut's an excellent basketball state. When I got to Boston in 64, you know, everybody was talking about Hartford Public and Will Hillhouse and, 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 and all these and names, big star names. Oh, yeah, it was a big deal. Um, but it didn't have national residents. It was a regional residence, and, and he made them – obviously, UConn, one of the elite programs in America uh, while he was there. You can't overstate what he did. And um, obviously, and of course, the women speak, you know, that's a whole other topic that is just 
almost unimaginable. With yeah, the, I with saw Gino the, was done. I saw your sports reporters uh, report on Gino. That was uh, that was very yeah. you know yeah. very accurate. Yeah, well, thank you, and uh, you know they deserve all the credit. I mean, uh, so there you go. But um, I love driving by. However, I love driving by uh, 84 and seeing that sign out at the exit, and uh, you know people the people uh, field. Don't forget that. Don't forget about field hockey and soccer. <laughs> yep, right you know, there. They, they got, you got championships, but the women are headed over the men. I mean, that must drive Calhoun crazy. It goes women's basketball, men's basketball. That must, I mean, uh, 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 in, in the pecking order on the, on the sign. I love it. <laughs> and do you think, too, looking at the program, UConn, Edsall is the right hire, and do you think they eventually will end up in the ACC, UConn? Or UConn the Big, or the big unfair, Ten? Unfair. You know, it's a game of musical chairs, and they've been left out and standing, and that's just unfair. Uh, obviously, they're not happy in the, in, in the conference they're in, and they deserve to be in another conference, and they deserve to be. Uh, uh, but where, which one, necessarily? You know, I mean, you know, they, they're probably saying, well, we're, we're a better fit in the ACC than, than BC as well. And, you know, they probably were always right. They always said that. I know that. And uh, and Syracuse always said that, too, and they finally did get to the ACC. But uh, I don't know they where, it's, where they're going to wind up, but – they're not happy where they are. I know that. Do you think Edsall will is a good hire to come back to UConn? Do you think he was a good move for them, for the UConn but, football? Oh, Edsall, right. yes, oh, yes. I think it worked once before. It can probably work again. I, I, I'm guessing that I do. Not that you know, I, I don't have the you know the institutional knowledge enough about football coaches to uh, be as I would feel about basketball. But I do think it makes sense. If he wants to come back, then that that, that good. They're lucky to have him. Well, Bob, you know, I, I can't thank you enough for taking time out. I can talk about the Celtics for uh, days and, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, college sports. Uh, you know, I really appreciate it. Uh, last question, how do you like retirement? And uh, you, you, obviously you're staying very busy. I know you do a report up in Canada, a weekly radio gig up there, and uh, you're, you're everywhere. It's still in the ESPN Sports Reporters. You're staying very busy. I said when I uh, retired, I wrote a column in which I said that retirement was a technical term, which means that I'm no longer going to be the, um, in the employee of the company for whom I've worked for 44 years, but that I was entering into what I was calling phase two. I'm in phase two. I'm in year five of phase two. So I've got ESPN stuff. I've got local Comcast. Uh, I write a column for the Globe to 40 times a year, uh, so three a month. And I do have the radio gigs, uh, such as the one in Toronto. I was in Des Moines. Uh, I have local radio that I've done for 33 years. And uh, starting a podcast of my very, very own. And so uh, see how that goes. So all this is voluntary. All this keeps me good busy, not overwhelmed. Uh, I still have my time to travel and do what I want to do. It's, it's, It's all working out. Thank you for asking, as well as I ever could have dreamed. Well, Bob, that's well said, and uh, obviously a, a well sports life well lived. Uh, thanks so much for coming on Lights, Camera, Sports. It's a lot of fun uh, to talk about it and uh, every sport, really, with you, and especially Boston. You're welcome. But nice to be with you. Do it again some other time. Okay, Bob. Bob Ryan, thanks so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye.